0: India was the romantic literary muse of the famous 19th century English writer Rudyard Kipling. Out of this romance came his most famous book, Kim, whose central character is an English boy, disguised as an Indian, who spies for his British masters against Russian designs to conquer India. This was a tale of imperialism, knowledge and power that gave universal recognition to the term great game and also endowed the British Raj's intelligence service and its map makers with an adventurous mystique in their shadowy game of domination with the Russian Empire
1: in 19th century Central Asia. Welcome friends, James Corbett here, CorbettReport.com. Today is the 14th of November, 2013, and this is another edition of Film Literature and the New World Order, that series where on a monthly basis we're exploring different works of literature and or cinema and their relevance to the well, social and political and economic and other information that we talk about on a regular basis at CorbettReport.com. So for those of you who are familiar with this series, you will know that it generally comes out on the third Monday of each month. But that was disrupted last month because my family was visiting, so I didn't have a chance to get this recorded and done. And this month I'm going to be in France on the third Monday, that will be next Monday, so I am recording it now with our good friend David L. Smith, who has been kind enough to review uh, Kim by Rudyard Kipling and to comment on it with me today. So um, first of all, Dave, David, thank you very much for your time today, and thank you for doing this on very short notice, I only mentioned it after we recorded our last uh, interview, so I know it, you didn't have a lot of time to go through it, but uh, you did, I believe, listen to the audiobook version of this?
0: Uh, yes, indeed. I, I listened to the audio book, which is extremely good. It is quite lengthy, and um, you do get a slightly different impression of a book by listening to the audio compared to reading it. Um, but, but it is nonetheless, it's a remarkable story. It's the story of a young boy, an uh, orphan boy in India, <coughs> whose father belonged to um, an, arm, an army regiment, And uh, he lives for a number of years in the streets in India, (coughs) sorry, excuse me, Uh, as as a beggar boy, knowing all all of the local uh, scene and situation. And he is eventually rediscovered by the army, um, who realizes he's a very smart kid. And also he ends up back in the unit where his father had at one time served. And little by little, his life changes because he also meets uh, a lama who is on a on a mission to discover uh, a river which is meant to bring peace and tranquility to the rest of his life and uh, the two become befriended and and the young boy's life is torn between the life with the Lama of wandering and exploring and quite spiritual and, the, and the, the world of the army and the world of the army leads him towards uh, in particular uh, the world of spying because uh, at that particular time, there were a lot, lot of uh, rivalries between uh, the British Empire and uh, the neighboring countries, Afghanistan, and, of course, the influence of Russia behind it. So the, it, it turns into uh, from spirituality into a kind of a te- detective story into a t- kind of uh, uh, divided loyalty between the two families that the boys brought up with them, the, the British Raj military um, spying complex, if you like, and the spiritual world of the Lama. And the end of the book, um, you're still left to some degree in doubt as to which side of the camp he has actually picked, but he, he lives <clears throat> he lives a fascinating life between the two. So, um, the author of the book is Rudyard Kipling, uh, he was one of the first people actually when the Nobel Peace Prize, not, not the Nobel Peace Prize came out, the Nobel Prizes came out, he was one of the first people to earn a prize for literature, and he was also the, the, the youngest person to receive a prize for, for literature. And uh, I have to say I can see why. Um, Anyone who's ever tried to write a book or write particularly one with a historical background or a a deep contextual element to it, realizes how much research that you have to do or how many hours of research you have to do to write one page. And and he has got something which is almost four-dimensional in in, uh, what he is writing about. He's writing about India, the the, the British approach, uh, the uh, <clears throat> neighboring influences like Pakistan and then all of the social skills within, within the country and I think he does it remarkably well very convincingly for me and I'm not surprised that this book was, was a bestseller and is regarded by many many people as the as summit of his uh, of his writing skills so um, there we are well, that Just is,
1: yes, an excellent summary, and uh, that is a good launching point for the conversation, because as you say, it was certainly well-received by many people at the time, and it was re- widely recognized as a, as a great book. In fact, on TheAtlantic.com, you can find a, a review that was written in December of 1901. Um, that starts out by saying, quote, There is a fine antidote to all manner of morbidness in the brilliant pages of Kim. Mr. Kim Kipling's last work, at the time, is to my mind his best, and not easily comparable with the work of any other man, for it is of its own kind, and of a novel kind, and fairly amazes one by the proof it affords of the author's magnificent versatility. Not much of a story may perhaps be the verdict of the ruthless boy reader who revels in the Jungle Book and Captain Courageous, and derives an unholy gratification from Stocky and Co., Kim is, in fact, and upon the surface, but an insignificant fragment of human history—a bit out of the biography of a little vagabond of Irish parentage, orphaned when a baby and left to shift for himself in infinite India—and it goes on from there. And I, I will put that link in so you can read that. That's just some of the reception that occurred at the time there in 1901. So I I think you're exactly right. Uh, Kipling's literary reputation was certainly uh, cemented with uh, with Kim, if it hadn't already coalesced at that time with some of his better-known works, uh, the Jungle Book and. and Things of that nature that had already come out at that time, but this was certainly um, a step upwards in terms of uh, content and and depth of exploration of the subject. And I must admit, I my like myself, like yourself, was deeply impressed with uh, the versatility and the knowledge and the depth of the exploration that he puts into to his writing of of India and all of the various aspects of it and the different castes and and all of this that uh, that go into the 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 kind of uh, the the portrayal the the representation of this world. Um, however, of course, uh, we know that in in recent decades, uh, uh, Kipling and his legacy have been. Well, shall we say, challenged by um, by various forces. Of course, the post colonial school of literary criticism, headed and spearheaded by people like Edward Said, have uh, greatly criticized Kipling um, for his portrayal, saying it is uh, uh, stereotypical and uh, and doesn't show a, a true understanding of India, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, but I find, in fact, in the research that I was doing for today, one of the most interesting um, reviews that I read was actually by George Orwell, who wrote a kind of overall over arching essay about Rudyard Kipling. And uh, I will, again, refer uh, listeners to that. I'll, I'll put the link in. But he has some interesting things to say about Kipling and um, and the the line that he straddles between being just a uh, a vulgar uh, uh, propagandizer for imperialism and someone who has a, a somewhat subtler and, and more complicated understanding of what's happening there. Um, let's let's start with an exploration of that subject because of course this is something that uh, that's very much at the heart of the story is the uh, the idea of British imperialist involvement in India and the extent to which that. That is a good thing. Is it a is it a bad thing? Does it have a mixed legacy? What? How does uh, Kipling portray it? Um, how did that come across to you? And and what were was your take on that from the historical perspective that Kipling was writing from?
0: Mm. <clears throat> well, it's a very good question. I mean, to me, um, Kipling was a, a man of his times. I mean, he he was um, writing at the time when the British Raj was at its zenith at the turn at the turn of the nineteenth to twentieth century. Um, he himself uh, had been, I believe, born in India, um, had spent his his uh, early, early years in India, then went back to, to be schooled in the UK in fairly tough circumstances, and eventually he came back again to India. His father was uh, basically a professor uh, look, looking after a museum in, I believe, Lahore. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, in in the British colonial environment, there there was uh, they, they were a fairly tight knit group because all in all, in India, there was a population at that time of maybe fifty million people, and there were half a million Brits. So, if you take out the the, the military aspects of it and and the traders, you know, there was a very small British elite who all knew each other, and and. And uh, certainly Kipling and his family were, were part of that elite. And there's even references to um, them being quite close to the, the, the Viceroy of India at the time. So um, I would suspect, um, you know, I'd say <laughs> I, I'm a lot, a lot behind Kipling in terms of generations. But I, I've seen personally, you know, the end of the British Empire um, from my, my, my aunts and uncles who, who lived through that time in history as well. And the assumption was that the empire would, would would continue. The assumption was, by and large, that people were there to do good. There were, of course, you know, the <clears throat> the evil exploiters as there are anyway. And, uh, you know, in Africa, that was characterized by Cecil Rhodes. And some people might say Clive of India was a fairly bad character as well. The, but, um, you know, all, all, all of these elements led to, at, at around that time, uh, probably a sense of... Uh, the, f- the fact that this is the way the, the world order should always have been and, and it wasn't really to be questioned because the people who were in it were very comfortable in it. And occasionally I found myself looking at it and thinking well, this is a hundred years ago the version of what the American Empire is going through today, that where they think that their abuse of hegemony is 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 theirs by God-given right and uh, when they throw their weight around then then that's only fair because they're the, they're the arbiters of everything. <clears throat> so, um... I, I I don't believe uh, you know it's very easy to rewrite history in, a, in 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 a different context and were were these people you know stereotyping? No, I don't think so. And I I I think that Kipling, you know, he he started as I say he he was born in India. He did a, a sense of the culture. He went to the UK. He came back. Uh, when he came back, he worked as a journalist for a num- a, a number of years essentially in. Um, in the area of India he was writing about. He would certainly have seen the caste system at work and, and you know, help administer it. So I, I think for for people a hundred years later to criticise cynically and say he didn't understand anything when the people who are making these comments uh, have never even probably been to the country or or um, understood any of it or lived, lived or felt any of it, uh, and they're doing it a kind of post-ex-post post facto um, you know, uh, kind of US view on, view on the world that I think is rather comical.
1: I, I tend to agree with that. I think that uh, that is just too easy an assessment to make and uh, and it is uh, interesting you you mention of course uh, Kipling's connection to Cecil Rhodes who was his personal friend and uh, Kipling wrote some lines uh, uh, some a poem for Rhodes's uh, funeral and I believe that's still on in some inscription somewhere or other in Rhodesia um as a m- m- memorial to uh, Cecil and uh and that, of course, should be interesting to anyone who follows any of my work, because, of course, they'll know that the Cecil Rhodes was the founder of the the Roundtable Group through his um, his last one of his last wills and testaments, and uh, that has branched out into becoming the. Uh the uh, Royal Institute of International Affairs, slash the CFR, slash the core of uh, groups, uh, international trans, transnational groups that have been fighting for a different type of world order, perhaps, than the one Cecil Rhodes was envisioning specifically, but still something along those lines. So this is does have some sort of degree of continuum there, and uh, people who have read uh, uh, Tragedy and Hope and other uh, uh, tomes like that will have an understanding of that. And just on that note uh, from that particular Orwell essay that I was talking about before, he writes, uh, but how true is it that Uh, that he, Kipling, was a vulgar flag waver, a sort of publicity agent for Cecil Rhodes. It is true, but it is not true that he was a yes-man or a time-server. After his early days, if then, he never courted public opinion. Uh, Mr. Elliott says that what is held against him is that he expressed unpopular views in a popular style. This narrows the issue by assuming that unpopular means unpopular with the intelligentsia, but it is a fact that Kipling's message was one that the big public did not want and indeed has never accepted. The mass of the people in the 90s, the 1890s, as now, were anti-militarist, bored by the empire, and only unconsciously patriotic. Kipling's official admirers are and were the service middle class the people who read Blackwoods so uh, again a very interesting assessment from from Orwell talking about that that uh, that I think fundamental underlying truth is I think it's it, it, as you point out it's equally true of the American Empire of today that the average person really doesn't, feel wonderful about this militarism and bloodshed around the world that's just the the type of patriotic gloss that uh, that they put over top of it and they have the uh, the corporate uh, media putting out all the propaganda to make you feel that that's the general sentiment but i uh, I, I haven't met many of those people in real life anyway um, who, who really are gung-ho about uh, about the American imperial project and I imagine it was probably equally true back in Kipling's time this was just the official kind of gloss that was put over things and popularized um, by People like people like Kipling, who who did contribute to that with uh, with some of his writings, obviously. Um, turning. Turning to probably one of the, the core central issues of, of Kim geopolitically speaking, of course, we're talking about something called the Great Game, which was something that lasted throughout much of the 19th century, and I, I believe the term was coined by someone different, but it was really popularized and brought into the public consciousness by Kipling in the, this book, where it is specifically mentioned by name, and the Great Game, as you mentioned before, was the struggle between Russia and Britain for control of Central Asia, which was then, as it is now, seen is kind of the crown jewel in any any attempt at any anything like a global empire And uh, of course, um, the struggle for uh, states like Afghanistan or whatever form it was in at the time really was uh, central in Britain's thinking to its defense of its Indian empire, um, uh, Indian aspect of its empire. Because uh, if Afghanistan fell, I guess it was the domino theory of the 19th century. If Afghanistan fell to the Russians, then uh, they would be able to stage an attack on India. And uh, that was the great concern throughout much of the 19th century, a lot of political intrigue happening. Let's talk about that aspect of, uh, of, the geopolitics that that form the background to kim and uh really do uh, drive the plot along as he becomes an SP, a spy for the uh, the british army
0: yeah exactly well uh, you know the great game you described it pretty well i mean the the, the same game by whatever name is is going on today and it, it is geopolitical rivalries between the, the great powers in the world, and we have demonstrations of it all the way through the Middle East. We have demonstrations of it also, uh, you know, between to some degree China and Russia. Uh, the uh, the American intervention are probable attempts at destabilizing, um, you know, situations in China and Russia by by using Islamist uh, extremists as their as their puppets or whatever else you want to call it. But uh, don't forget at that time, I mean, Brit- Britain was looking fairly. Secure. I mean, they had they had Hong Kong, uh, which was completely under their, their control. It was the Hong Kong, Shanghai. I mean, the, the all all of the trade coming out to China was going through these these uh, these ports, these great cities. Um, you also look at India, where India, Burma, they had they had tea, they had rubber, they had oil, they had uh, they, they basically had hands on all the resources. And of course, uh, if if I were a neighbor looking over at that, I would be unhappy. And uh, if we look at what happened with Japan some twenty or thirty years later, I mean, the the fact that they were deprived of of uh, of the basic raw materials to ensure uh, their their own independent survival led, in many respects, to you know, the walking out of the League of Nations, their their militaristic build up, and eventually to Pearl Harbor. So all all of these things are sort of uh, un- underlying uh and 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 going on all all of the time and and yes there was the certainly the um uh, the, the 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 struggle the hidden struggle a uh, covert struggle between uh, russia and india and in a large part i mean the the british in terms of colonialists i think were probably smarter than most in in that they co-opted uh, the lo- the local leadership uh, to um <coughs> to work along with them and um, that way, they managed to control, as I say, you know, 50 million people with 500,000. There was an awful lot of it was done by undercover work and and spies and and intrigues and uh, payoffs. And it's a bit like Afghanistan today, on a on a bigger scale. You know, where where you have one Mr. Karzai who's paid off as uh, you know the the president of Kabul off as uh, little sub-presidents of other areas. I mean, this this is how the Ind- India was run as well. So, um, yes, I mean, it, it would be a fascinating time, and, and as long as you're spying and not maneuvering people, you're not actually shooting and killing. And that's uh, that's part of the success of the, the British Empire, which ran all the way through basically until after the, after the uh, Second World War, where, where Britain admitted that... Um, that the end of the game had come and uh, basically progressively handed over um, independence to India in 47 or 49, I can't remember which. Um, and of course the French took a different approach and said, well, we're going to hang on to Indochina militarily, and that led to Jian Bien Phu and uh, a, a massive humiliating defeat for, for the French and their the final withdrawal from uh, basically from the Asian scene altogether. And that left the door open for the War of Vietnam. So um, I'm all for spying. <laughs> Put it like that. Spying, <laughs> spying spills little
1: blood. And, I mean, it's interesting that Kipling creates in Kim the char- the perfect character for a spy. I mean, this is the, the template, the blueprint for what you would want, I think, in a spy. Someone who has grown up as an outsider of the outsiders, um, who was fully Irish by, by ethnicity, but grew up basically as a native. Um, was able to pay, pass as a native, um, and and yet was was familiar. Really, did straddle both worlds, and was familiar with both, and had loyalties and allegiances to both. Which goes back to that spiritual slash uh, military type divide that we see in in the story that you mentioned earlier, and uh, and the the story of how he comes to be recruited, and and it, I mean, it all seems quite quite realistic in in the way that it's portrayed. At any rate, I think he does um, an exceptional job of creating the 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 in the character itself, kind of the foundation of the story.
0: Well, this is very true. I mean, it's rather comical. Our model of spies are all kind of James Bond driving around in Aston Martins and and dropping into great events out of helicopters. But the reality of spying, uh, I I, I think, on the ground is is people like this, people who are very often relatively CD, uh, whose... origins are very mixed whose allegiances are mixed because if your allegiances weren't mixed you wouldn't spy and then of course these people are guided and controlled by the, the, the spy masters and in the UK for example the spy masters you know if you don't have a first from Cambridge you you can't become a spy master and if you don't go to the right college then probably you'll not be on the list either so the whole the, the whole thing is is uh, a bit comical and uh, I, I I seriously wonder about how efficient uh, our uh, spying apparatus is, at least in Britain. And I think with the CIA, I mean, very often these people stand out like sore thumbs. You know, Geneva is a city where there's a lot of spying goes on because it's uh, it's a crossroads of the United Nations, it's a crossroad of business, et etc., et cetera, et cetera. And I mean, there are even bars where these people are known to hang out. And you don't need to guess very hard when you see a few bruisers with a sort of bulging jacket pocket uh, besides someone who obviously looks like a Brit who's lost in the middle of Switzerland, to have an idea what might be going on. So um, anyway, yes, all, all that's true. Um, one, one thing I was going to mention coming back, um, that I think it's important to understand about Kipling, is, is his life was actually quite tragic, and that probably influenced his writing and his views as well, because he had, uh, he had one child, he had three children, one, um, one son, two daughters, and uh, one of his daughters died of pneumonia quite young, and his son was um, killed in the First World War. And, and in, in large measure, the father, who believed in the colonial structure and the struggle between, uh, you know, <coughs> evil and the fight against Bolshevism and, and all the rest of it, kind of pushed his son into the war, and he came back in a, in a body bag. And, of course, this, this led to this enormous tragedy in his life. So when you read some of the things that he's, he's written, I mean, I, there, there's one other work that's worth mentioning, a, a poem which is often criticized called The White Man's Burden. Now, The White Man's Burden, some people interpret it as, as uh, you know, a, a cry for colonialism and the merits of colonialism. But at the same time, if you read it with a different view, you can read it very easily and say, well, actually, he says what... Um, he says what colonialism is, but at the same time, he says a terrible price to pay by sending the sons of uh sons to the empire never to come back, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So, um, you know, he, Kipling is not here to ask him what he actually thought when he wrote it, but uh, I, I, I don't find myself coming down and saying he was a guy who was in any way a believer in, in colonialism to the point, you know the point of destroying villages to save them. I don't think so at all. I, I, I kind of really take the opposite
1: Richard. point there because I think um I think he was a a true believer in it. Um, I think that that there are people who have these ideas of imperialism, colonialism, and whatever that are just convenient ideologies as a way of projecting power around the globe and will use that to put the pieces in place in various countries. But I think there are people like Kipling who truly believe in the in the quest in the in the idea well we can we can civilize the world, we can really do this and I think that he really believed in that ideal and really th- thought that that's what it was going to in- inevitably lead to. And I, I think what the, the, the in the aftermath of World War One, not only, of course, the, 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 the actual price that he paid with his son, but, but in, just seeing that despite having been victorious in this great war, uh, England was left even less of a a superpower than it was before it. I mean, it was, it was in a weakened state, basically, uh, geopolitically. And, and the idea of the British Empire started to, to wane, certainly from that point. Um, So I think he was really devastated on a number of levels from that. And, and, uh, and so, uh, so we're told that his later works are more somber. I'm not, familiar enough with the oeuvre of Kipling to be able to evaluate that, but that certainly makes sense. Um, but of course, what, what we're talking about with Kim, this came out in 1901. So I think still in his earlier period where he was still uh, more hopeful, more optimistic about the, the end goal of this imperialist quest.
0: Yeah. yeah, yeah. right. I think a number of politicians from that period, and another one you could cite very easily is, is, is uh, politicians and intelligentsia from that period believed in in the colonial uh, approach because, he, you know, part of it was evangelizing Christianity around the world, part of it was uh, grabbing empire. My grandfather was a missionary, for example, so he believed in in, in it uh, fervently and sincerely. Um, but you take people like Churchill, it was the same thing. I mean, his, his belief was fundamentally that, uh, you know, trying to help the natives was actually doing good and um i think quite often it was sometimes it wasn't and when when you see aberrant countries that emerge like uh, zimbabwe with the with the terrible suffering of the people there or you know the post independence countries like nigeria with civil mm-hmm. wars and millions and millions of people who die then you have to say well was colonialism so bad because at 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 no point uh did these things actually happen under at least under british colonialism and you know, people hold up Amritsar in India as being one of the, you know, the, the terrible things that happened where several hundred people were slain. And it is true, there were several hundred people, and it was a terrible thing. But in terms of absolute numbers, I mean, the the the, the death toll inflicted by third world leaders on, on uh, their own population sub, uh, subsequent to independence. Is hundreds of times more than colonialism ever achieved in its most dark moments,
1: but the flip side of that argument is saying that well, they those structures that were then abandoned by the British wouldn't have been in place. They, the society would have evolved in a different way if the imperialism hadn't been there as the template in the first place, and it was the withdrawal that causes the 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 kind of fallout from that which causes the problem. So, um, but at any rate, I mean, that's what certain people within the American imperialist superstructure these days would say, well, we're spreading freedom and democracy. And I'm sure there are people who truly, really believe it as true believers that they really are spreading freedom and democracy at the barrel of a gun. Um, but let's downplay that, that secondary part of it. So, I, I mean, these are issues that are very much still with us. So so just bringing this all back to the present day, because ultimately this is what this series is about, uh, exploring these con- these historical works in the context of what we're talking about here on a weekly basis. As you mentioned, the great game is really still going on, and it's a kind of a new great game, but it's still happening, and it's still, I mean... Russia, Britain are still involved in it. And at any rate, if you look at NATO and Russia and talking about roughly the same geographical area and uh, centering on Central Asia and the Central Asian republics and looking at some of the, uh, the things that are going on right now in terms of fomenting Islamic terrorism there and and all of that although I would say that the difference between the Great Game of the 19th and the 20th century, or 21st centuries, is that in the 19th century it was more about actual control of geographical areas. Now it seems to be more about control of the resources and the transportation corridors for those resources, namely the pipelines, um, which is such a fundamental part of what's going on right now when we're looking at all of these Nabaco and all, all of these different pipeline deals that are being waged and, and which, which countries they'll cut through and who control, who has influence Over which country and and which uh, terrorists are popping up in what countries to to uh, threaten to undermine which and which which government etc etc. So it is a different great game, but it's very much similar in terms of course uh, competing for the same the same geographical locations and uh, and and figures. Um, So I guess the question is, what if anything can we learn about the nature, the form, the 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 potential for the development of this new great game from what Kipling shows us about the old great game of the 19th century?
0: Boy, that's a heavy question.
1: (laughs) And you have two minutes to
0: summarize this. (laughs) (laughs) uh, I should do some Buddhist um, meditation for the next two minutes,
1: like. Um, Get get, get detached from the wheel of life.
0: (laughs) Exactly. You know, the, the, the rivalries between great powers will be there for, forever. And as you say, what they actually want to get their hands on or, or the way the the means they use to get their hands on things become more and more subtle. And uh, if, if you look at the moment, we're, we're witnessing cyber wars becoming increasingly important, whereas 100 years ago, you were sailing around with huge battleships uh, on the um on the sea, trying to keep the sea lanes open to get your goods back to any particular country now we're looking at things where people are well, for example if if we believe what's said about uh uh was it, the um Iranian nuclear plants for example at Stuxnet, the 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 malware that was injected into that managed to cripple the nuclear plant now maybe what we're moving towards is things like you are phoning up Japan one day and saying, "Well, just to let you know um, we've introduced uh, Stuxnet into all your nuclear plant- plants in the country, and we 'd like you to do the following things as soon as possible, please so it it is becoming more and more subtle and it's moving it's moving more towards the Kim model of uh, you know spying undercover operations uh, you know and uh, introducing a, a a tiny little uh, software bug in, into a sophisticated system can create an awful lot more damage than sinking a, an aircraft carrier in the middle of the, the sea or or attacking Pearl Harbor or whatever whatever else it is. So um all of the all of the tricks of the game uh become much more it's a much more intellectual game. It's not really a physical game anymore. I mean a physical game could be the end result of the chain of events. But But by and large, I think that that is the biggest mutation. It's a technology mutation, but uh, it doesn't really matter. You know, if you read anything from Julius Caesar all the way through to today, you know, people were still killing each other for for power and rivalries and uh, expanding empires or contracting empires, etc. So we're just on, we're in the wheel of life, as uh, they say in the book. And this great wheel changes, but the... The more it turns around, the more it remains the same.
1: You know, that is a very good assessment of it, because it really is so true. I mean, all of these intrigues and things, of course, the names, the places, the dates, the figures change, but it's ultimately the same thing happening generation after generation after generation, and it really does make you wonder if we will ever be able to escape that and find a different path, a different narrative, a different story, so that we don't have to live through it again and again and again. Um, we should know our history, so we're not doomed to repeat it. I guess would be the apt uh, quotation to bring into mind. Um, well, on that note, uh, just uh, as something completely different, um, I found it interesting that uh, that uh, I, I believe it was in that Orwell essay that he notes uh, some of the phrases, the neologisms that uh, that Kipling brought into the English language, which. Uh, is always something interesting to look at. And, of course, uh, some of them are st- we still used in this day and age. Some of them I've never heard before, like uh, East is East and West is West. Uh, the white man's burden, as you mentioned. Uh, what do they know of England, England who only England know? Uh, the female of the species is more deadly than the male. Um, somewhere east of Suez is apparently one of Kipling's lines, and paying the Dane yelled. Which I I don't I have I don't, I've never heard that before in my life. So, but anyway, some of the things that Kipling has contributed to the English language, and uh, befitting his status as a an illustrious Nobel laureate, I suppose. Although I must admit my. My taste for the Nobel Prize has been deeply uh, scarred by the Peace Prize uh, recipients of various times, and from Nixon on to Obama and all of them. Um, but at any rate, some, just some interesting facts. And of course, as I say, I'll throw in those links to those, uh, those articles that I was talking about uh, in today's conversation. Uh, David Smith, anything else you'd like to say to wrap up our conversation about this book?
0: No, no, I think we've done the tour. i would just give you one last quote from Kipling, which I, I learned as a kid which was uh, the, uh, the poem of gongadin and the story of gongadin was he was a servant who was badly treated and uh, on, the, on the battlefield he, he saved somebody and in the course of being saved he got killed himself um, <clears throat> and the last line of the poem is you're a better man than I am gongadin so uh, the British Empire did have some respect for these people after all
1: very, very interesting. Well, again, I want people to take a look at this for themselves. I certainly hope you've read, Kip, Kim, if you're listening to this. But uh, if you have, perhaps you can use this as a springboard to explore some of other Kipling's other works and uh, perhaps his influence on and influence by uh, people like Cecil Rhodes and how that redounds through the ages to today and also how the Great Game is uh, being renewed. And for people who are interested in the new Great Game, as it has been dubbed, um, there is, in fact, a regular update uh, news update series at boilingfrogspost.com called The New Great Game Roundup that's put together by Christoph German um, in Germany who I interviewed a couple of months back so you can find my interview with him where we talk about some of the aspects of this new great game as it unfolds so uh, so again it's basically uh, the same thing happening all over again alright uh, David Smith thank you very much for your time once again of course people can find you at genevabusinessinsider.blogspot.com and I'm looking forward to talking to you again for our regular Geneva Business Insider uh, conversation next month but until then thank you so much for for your time
0: it's a pleasure i never thought in my life i'd become a literary critic but <laughs> you know this wonderful world of technology makes all things possible so thanks very much for inviting me once again on your show on a completely different theme
1: All right, folks, there he goes, David L. Smith of Geneva Business Insider. And that's going to do it for today's edition of Film Literature and the New World Order. And generally, I would usually wrap up most of the episodes by sharing some feedback from the previous edition of the uh, podcast. But the last edition, of course, was our conversation with Thomas Sheridan uh, talking about Gaslight. And although it was a popular conversation, there was a lot of positive feedback saying it was a good conversation. And actually, I had one email from one person who really disliked the conversation. But generally, very positive feedback, but not, not not really any specific feedback that I can share or any more insights into the movie itself or the um, uh, the various adaptations of it. So we will forego the usual feedback uh, wrap-up wrap today, but I should, of course, announce what will be up next on our plate for Film Literature in the New World Order, and that is going to be an... Well, a movie called Troll Hunter, and it's a Norwegian movie, so it may be more difficult to get your hands on, but hopefully you will persist in doing so. And I make this, uh, this, well, it's not a recommendation, but I put this up as the next thing that we're going to talk about, despite not having ever seen this movie on the recommendation of Tom Secker, who I will, of course, be meeting next week in France, so if you don't like it, or if it turns out to be a dud, well, don't blame me. Um, it Blame Tom. His entire reputation will be riding on this recommendation, so we'll hold him to that. At any rate, that's going to be the next movie that's going to be up on the chopping block for Film Literature in the New World Order. That'll be the third Monday in December, so I hope you will all be ready and prepared for then. As always, all the show notes will be linked up in this, uh, on the website at CorbettReport.com. So you can check there for everything we talked about today and a link to uh, information about Trollhunter for next month. So that's going to do it for today. And I really hope I'm going to be able to put together that JFK podcast before I leave for France. And uh, if so, you can look forward to that popping up on the website this weekend. That's it for me, James Corbett, Corbett CorbettReport.com. Thanks for listening.